Well, when you see the title there on that first slide, The World's a Mess and I'm Mad, that's not really the title of my message. The, the title is really Keys to Reclaiming Your Peace, Joy, and Contentment. But I don't know if you felt like that, that much in the last year or two or however long it's gone on. Have you felt that there's a lot wrong in the world, a lot wrong in our country, our state even? Is it things, it's hard to know even where to begin as to the things that might make us feel mad or angry. I mean, are we, we could look to the Islamic terrorism that's around us that our country seems unwilling to address or unable to address. There's so many things going on. Um, you, we hear that Islam is a religion of peace. Does that get to you some, if you really have studied it and know a little bit about what Muhammad really taught. Are there other things that make you angry, or uh, such as the racial unrest that continues to grow, the expanding homosexual agenda, government corruption, lying politicians, terrible choices in our elections, it seems like, that we have to make? Political correctness, where do we end? Maybe it's just not all of those worldly events but just this growing disrespect for God and his word and the constant slide away from biblical morality. I'm going to hope that this works. Appears too. Um, what this really comes down to in a way is that our joy is being stolen. Our peace is being stolen by the world around us. Now you may say, anger is not the right emotion that I feel when I think about these current events. To you it may be things like worry or sadness, or frustration, or maybe even despair. You might be worrying or fretting for your own well-being, or it might be that you are worrying about your children or your grandchildren who are facing temptations and dangers that were really unheard of when you were younger. Maybe you're just frustrated that there seems to be little or no hope when you look at the trends that are going on. And maybe you think that God has really given our nation over to our collective depraved way of thinking or living as though he really doesn't even exist. Maybe you're just frustrated uh, by these things, but there probably is some emotion that is being elicited by what's going on in the world. And regardless of which one fits you best, the bottom line is they have a tendency to steal our joy and peace. And what happens, too, when we think about these things? We tend to grumble or complain whether we're together with church friends, family, whoever it is, we tend to c complain about what we see that's going on in the world. And we know that God is really not pleased when we are grumblers or complainers. But it would also be foolish for us to just bury our head in the sand and not think about these things, ignoring them. I don't know if any of you ever heard of the man Robert Bork. He was a person who was nominated as a Supreme Court Justice by Ronald Reagan, but never confirmed. But he published a book called Slouching Towards Gomorrah in 1996. And it was prophetic in some ways. But I would say that also in some ways, he underestimated the trends that would be going on in our society. He used the word slouching towards Gomorrah. And what does slouching imply? It implies a gradual or maybe careless, non-intentional slide towards evil ways. 
I think if he would have known how quickly things would happen later, he might have picked a different verb. He might have, and although this doesn't sound like a great title, it could be something like marching towards Gomorrah, which would be more of this purposeful movement that seems to be in our society of moving towards evil, or rocketing to illustrate the accelerating pace of moving towards evil ways. But today, what we see around us is many of our politicians and entertainers, business leaders, news media, wherever you want to stop on that, that are seem to be tolerant of just about everything other than Christianity. And they have a tendency, and, and unashamedly, to call evil good and good evil. We seem to be in a freefall condition right now. Now, if we start looking into Scripture, we're not going to be just talking about the political ways. We're going to be looking into the Bible to see how we can deal with this tendency towards feeling down as to what we see going on around us. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul described the unbelievers of the day, the pagans of his time, and it sounds pretty similar to what we see here today. They suppress the truth, they exchange truth for a lie, and then looking at Romans 1.32 in its entirety, although they know God's righteous decree, and those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And then it says also that God gave these people over to their depraved way of thinking. It really does sound like what we see going on around us today. But despite the fact that evil has abounded at different times in the history of man, as it is appearing to grow and abound in our time, God doesn't want us to be consumed by these negative emotions, and he doesn't want us to be complaining and grumbling over and over about this. And we see that very well in his overall attitude towards complaining and grumbling with the Israelites and their example of when he freed them from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. Quickly, those people, and he led them out of Egypt. He, he finally allowed, Pharaoh allowed uh, them to leave, But they quickly forgot the miracles that he had performed to free them. And they grumbled about their hardships and the battles that they were going to be facing. They didn't want to fight battles to move into the promised land. He saw their grumbling as a lack of faith and thankfulness in them. And I think he would see the same way for us today. If these negative emotions about what's going on in the world cause us to grumble, I would think he sees that similarly to what he saw in them, a lack of faithfulness and thankfulness on our part. Now, I know I am guilty. I'm one of the guilty parties. I would raise my hand and say, yes, I at times feel a lot of those emotions. I at times grumble and complain. I probably have been in conversation with some of you that would be defined as complaining or grumbling about what we see going on. So you know it. You've been there with me. You've been part of it. You know, we've all participated in those kind of things. But God doesn't want us to ignore the evil in the world either. He doesn't want us to bury our head in the sand and forget about it and say, we don't really need to worry about this. And we really have a couple examples um, that I would like to 
talk about. You see David up on the screen, but before I even get to that, I want to say something about the heart of David. We see the heart of David in Psalm 69, where Psalm 69 is called an imprecatory psalm. I'm thinking I'm pronouncing that right. And what that really is, is where curses are called down upon someone who has sinned against God. But in this Psalm 69, this is David's psalm. He says, zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Today, when you think of zeal, do you think positively? Is, in our culture today, is zeal a good thing? Well, for the most part, it's not. It's, it's, people think fanatic, intolerant. But you know, in Psalm 69 or elsewhere in Scripture, as we will see in a minute, zeal was a good thing. It was a positive thing. It was dedication or enthusiasm for something that you strongly believed. That may, zeal made you willing to act. And it motivated you to do something that you thought was needed. In David's case, he had zeal. He said he did. And it was strong faith that led him to have a zealous response to some things in his life. So, we're back to David and Goliath. A good example, even as a boy, we could see the zeal of David, where he fearlessly confronted the Philistine giant Goliath, when all of Israel was terrified to go out and fight for their nation against him. But David's uh, zeal also led him to some of these words here that that we can see. This is just taking some excerpts from this, uh, his words when he confronted Goliath. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. We easily can see David's zeal in his words towards Goliath. We have another example, though, in Jesus, which links back to to David's Psalm 69, too. Well, we, we saw Jesus twice drive the money changers and merchants from the temple with a whip. And what his words were at that time, he said, It's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, John 2 refers to one of those events of driving out the merchants. And in that passage in John 2, his disciples remembered Psalm 69. 69. And they recognized that those words of David about zeal for your house also applied to Jesus. And so zeal was good. Zeal was something that prompted action by both of these men as examples that we can resist evil, we can stand firm, but we can do it in a way that doesn't really steal our peace and joy. Just because we have those feelings of zeal for God, we can maintain peace and joy and contentment in the midst of whatever kind of action or standing firm it is. But this is not easy to do. You may think, well, how can I have zeal? How can I stand firm? How can I fight and still be, have peace and joy? Well, we're going to try to talk about a little bit of that today. Now, uh, here's where we're going to turn to Paul, because Paul is the one 
whose teaching that we are going to call upon to try to help us understand how to do, do this, how to retain our peace and joy. Those keys that we're talking about are going to come from his teaching. Now, Paul, from um, a dungeon in Rome, wrote a letter to the Philippians, one of his last letters. And in this, he talked about how he had to learn the secret of being content and maintaining peace in every circumstance. In uh, Philippians there, we read, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. So during his walk of faith that began on that road to Damascus when he encountered Jesus, over a period of some time, he learned it. We need to learn the same thing. It doesn't come naturally, even if you're a Christian, Having peace and contentment is not a natural outflow. We need to learn some doctrinal, biblical teaching truth to help us with that. And today, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at five secrets, and I'm sure there are many more than five, that we could gleam from Paul's teachings of things that he has learned, but I'm going to, I'm going to look at five things that I think would help us. If Paul could... A man who had been beaten, imprisoned unfairly, had little at times, had much at times. Uh, if he could retain his peace and joy in the trials that he underwent, I think we can too, just because we hear a lot of bad news around us. Okay. I want to begin by turning to something that we're all pretty familiar with, and this is in Galatians chapter 5 where Paul taught us about the fruits of the Spirit. We're pretty familiar with this list. Joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You note two of those are joy and peace. If we submit to the Holy Spirit who indwells us, sort of as that first song we sang talked some about, we have the Holy Spirit in us, we should be expressing these fruits in the way we interact with one another, and internally. Things like joy and peace are internal to us. We should have those fruits being expressed. Well, the question is, why are we not having all those fruits expressed if we are Christian, if we have the indwelling Holy Spirit? Well, there are several reasons, and I'm not going to be able to do a whole review of all the reasons that might be causing that, but I am going to look at one right now as to why our peace and joy seems to disappear quickly the next time we hear a bad story or some circumstance changes in our lives that causes us to just not be very happy. Peace and joy flees away very quickly from us. Well, one of the reasons that Paul talks about that could be relevant to losing our peace and joy or seeing those fruits expressed in our lives has to do with whether we are grieving the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit that indwells us. And how does that happen? How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, probably the most common way that we grieve the Holy Spirit, and Paul talks about that in that same uh, chapter of Ephesians where he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He also lists a bunch of sins, and these are sins that are common to Christians. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit. 
Sin hinders or suppresses the expression of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're not like the pagans who blatantly go out and clearly sin in front of others. Our sins are more subtle, but yet in that chapter of Ephesians, Paul lists them because they are common to Christians. If, if we claim to not sin, we lie, right? And some of those kinds of sins that are common to Christians are things maybe done subtly, maybe even privately, or a way that nobody hardly knows about it, but it's things like lying, stealing, laziness, bitterness, unforgiveness, unclean language. Things that could be not very obvious to everyone around, but yet we are guilty of them. And the more we sin, the more we grieve the Holy Spirit. So that is what I'm calling secret number one. We've got four others. You may think, well, that's not a secret, but it is still something that we need to think about. Sin in our life steals our joy and peace. On to another idea that Paul learned for himself and then taught us. That we have to have confidence that God is sovereign and trust he is faithful and able to keep his promises. There's two lines, uh, two words underlined in that statement, but I, I could probably underline some others because of the importance of them. Confidence. We have to have confidence. And we'll come to sovereign and faithful and talk a little bit more about that in a minute. We have to trust. We have to believe he is able. And then we have to think about his promises. So there's a lot of words there that are very key to um, understanding and maintaining our joy, peace, and contentment. Um, we, when we look at sovereignty, I don't want to get into a long discussion of sovereignty, but we have to believe that regardless of how bad conditions seem to be in the world and how hopeless it may seem at times for our own circumstances or our country, that God is still in control. He allows man to pursue evil. We have free will. But he uses evil over and over again to actually accomplish his purposes. And we saw the best example we all probably are somewhat familiar with is Joseph. Joseph's brother committed evil, sold him into slavery in Egypt, and what they meant for evil, it says right in Scripture, God used to accomplish good. And that good was to save the Israelites, the Hebrew people, from starvation and famine when Jacob and his family came to live down there. Joseph was in a position to take care of them, so God used their evil for good. We see over and over again, if we really look, uh, we can find examples in Scripture of God's involvement, his unfathomable uh, ability to weave together this infinitely complex set of circumstances in the world, many of which are evil, to accomplish his ultimate purposes. And what is that really to bring glory to himself and Jesus and blessings to his people? Nothing is impossible for God, even though that may seem impossible to us, that he could take all this evil together and work it for good. Now, a little bit just quickly more about sovereignty. I, I thought Romans 8:28 really addressed the concept a little more in a different way. Um, and we know that all things work together for good those, to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Paul knew from his knowledge of the history of the Jews and from his own life examples to wait patiently. This is something he learned. 
that God's timing would work itself out and that his good would ultimately be accomplished. He worked all things for good. So Paul knew that. That relates back to sovereignty. And then I want to say a little bit more about faithfulness, that we have to have confidence in God's faithfulness. Well, his faithfulness relates to uh, his promises. Those are clicked, they, uh, linked together, that God uh, promised us many, many things in Scripture, his people. I found one article in preparing that lists 54 promises of God to his people, and I'm sure there are more than that, but he is faithful to, to carry them all out. And uh, he tells us in the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.5 to be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is a promise. He'll always be with us there no matter what our circumstances. We can always lean on him and be comforted by him, find rest in him. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now, when I think of the promises of God, if I'm going to believe overall in his promises, the one that I like to cling to the most, means as much to me as anything, is the promise of eternal salvation, personal eternal salvation, if we trust in Jesus as our Savior. That is very comforting, and that is something that helps us retain our peace and contentment overall. Jesus taught this very clearly, and in John 10 is one verse where, uh, two verses here, where he uh, explains this concept, where Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. If we trust in this promise, and believe a lot of what Paul learned and then taught us about this promise, how we, every believer, is reckoned righteous before God if we trust that, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and clean us from, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We look at Jesus' words. That informed Paul and his teaching as to how we are eternally saved. That is a promise that helps us to remain content. Okay, uh, I'm going to go on to another promise, another secret that Paul revealed in his teachings. We need to think eternally. Now, um, this really goes back to Old Testament of what Paul learned. He probably knew a lot of this before his encounter with Jesus. Look back at what Solomon taught in Ecclesiastes 3.11, where Solomon said, The Lord has set eternity in the heart of every person. And despite the fact that that is in every one of us, eternity has been set in our hearts. We live as if today is all there is, here and now. We neglect that God-given yearning that's in our hearts because our flesh wants immediate gratification. We're constantly seeking after those things to gratify the flesh, whether it's money, things, body image, whatever that may be. We forget that these things will pass away, uh, the flesh sometimes uh, is overruling the spirit's desires in us, that battle that rages. And the flesh never stops chasing after the wind, again using one of Solomon's words. And he called all that vanity to chase after things that will clearly be gone soon. It's hard to have peace and contentment when all of 
what we uh, are looking at is in the here and now when we're not looking to things eternal. And uh, Jesus addressed this too, something that Paul would have learned from and Ken addressed this in his teaching just a couple weeks ago where Jesus said, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. If all of our treasures are tied up in our bodies, our possession, and our families, it's awful hard to find true peace and contentment and to maintain that because deep down we know those things are going to disappear. So um, Paul did emphasize this also in his teachings in 2 Corinthians in a slightly different way where he again is thinking eternally instead of the here and now where he said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far as outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is on unseen. Since what is unseen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Okay, on to the fourth secret. Um, what we see here is a person who seems to have been out on a shopping spree. And... Um, One of those secrets to contentment that I believe Paul learned and we need to learn is to be satisfied with little. And this is really hard for those of us living in the United States. We're addicted to having much. We're encouraged daily just about by messages that hit us from all directions to envy and covet what our neighbors have, what we see on TV, what we see in magazines, online pop-ups, whatever it is. We're encouraged to be dissatisfied. And the American way that we seem to live in is is the opposite of what Jesus taught about this concept, about taking up our cross daily and denying ourselves. Instead, we want it all. And that's what we're taught. And to be contented, that gets in the way of joy and contentment. Solomon, again, turning back to his words, also talks in a slightly different way about this where in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he said, whoever loves money never has enough. And also in Proverbs 27.10, the eyes of men are never satisfied. These truths about our material blessing, or material possessions, they are blessings in some cases, it, it relates back again to the news, to the worldly conditions that may steal our peace and joy. We want these things, and if we're fearful that anything that's going on in the world is potentially going to take them away or reduce them in some way or our ability to enjoy them, that also steals our peace and joy. So bottom line is we need to be satisfied with less and also combining that with the thinking eternally concept in order to retain our peace. And the fifth secret that I think Paul taught us, and this may be the most important of all, is we need to realize that Jesus can meet all our needs. And um, does that mean that Jesus is going to give us all we want, like the prosperity teachers tell us? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean we're going to have all these material blessings and all the money we want shed upon us. But it does mean that his grace will be shed upon us so that we're satisfied with what we have or what may be taken away from us even we can still be satisfied with that because he can meet all of our needs. We can be like Paul when, uh, when he was able to say 
His grace is sufficient for me when he was suffering from an ailment that God chose not to heal, despite the fact that he three times asked to be healed. He could still say that. He, he could still say, I'm contented because his grace is sufficient. We're commanded in Scripture in Hebrews 12:2 to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And when we do that, turning to Psalms 112, we'll be, have no fear of bad news. That's exactly what it says in Psalm 112:7. No fear of bad news, maybe no anger of bad news, no sadness of bad news. And our hearts will be steadfast because we're trusting in the Lord and not in our own strength. And Jesus also made another one of those promises to us in John 14, 27. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So lasting hope and peace and contentment doesn't come from who we elect next election. It doesn't come from our military might of our nation. It doesn't come from having a good home security system or plenty of money and lots of stuff. It doesn't really make much sense to trust in things that we know are going to disappear someday. Now, we often sing this song at Lion and Lamb, and probably one of you worship leaders will tell me that's not the title of the song, but I... It's nothing I desire compares with you. Um, I'm not sure what the title of the song is, but um, I think you're all familiar with this song. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds, and nothing I desire compares with you. We need to think this way about our relationship with Jesus if we really want to retain peace, joy, and contentment in all circumstances. We can be that way in all circumstances if we always know we have him there for us and our, we have that relationship with him. We have to think of our relationship with God in this way. And then that picture on the bottom is another song, really, that we sing that I you know, am so blessed by at times, where it says, in the morning... When I rise, give me Jesus. That attitude is one that will help us to retain our peace and joy and contentment. To sum it all up here, come back to the five secrets, but just to emphasize those things. But we really need to begin with the idea that it is okay to have zeal for the things of God. It is okay to hate the things that God hates. And... We should also love the things that God loves. We saw the example in David and Jesus, and zealousness for God and his ways is a good thing. So let's review these five things that we could try to make more real in our lives. We can pray that God will reveal sin to us. Search our hearts, O Lord. Show us where we have sin in our life, and when we have it revealed, repent, so that we will not be grieving the Holy Spirit, and we will be more able to have those fruits of the Spirit expressed in us. Think eternally. Lay up our treasures in heaven, not dwelling on our current circumstances. 
Remember that God is sovereign and faithful. Remember all of his promises. Think about, meditate on his promises. That he ha- Pick the ones that mean the most to you. I said personal eternal salvation is one that means the most to me. We could probably identify several of God's promises that mean an awful lot to you. And be satisfied with little. That's hard for most of us. We're used to a lot. And keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Ah, I'm so, I did not mean to do that. Um, I want to end with one thing. You know, we, talk, we began by talking about us worrying, fretting, being angry, whatever it is about the ways of the world. Psalm 37 is a psalm that talks about evil going on all around David. And I'm going to just read a few excerpts from Psalm 37 to end. Do not fret because of those who are evil. Trust in the Lord and do good. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. The Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble.